Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? How are you doing with the weather and everything? Oh, good. Sorry to bring you inside, but I'm glad you're here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning uh, to uh, Matthew chapter 5, New Testament, Matthew 5. Now, if you're a guest with us today, uh, just so you know what we're doing, uh, we're in a series right now called Blessed, which is basically uh, a study of eight statements uh, that Jesus made in his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, statements known as the Beatitudes. Beatitude comes from a Latin term that means, you know, the blessed statements or the happy statements. And um, with those statements, Jesus calls all of those who would follow him to a, to a way of life that runs contrary, not just to uh, the norms of culture, but the norms of human nature. Uh, Matthew records how one day on a mountainside on the north uh, of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sat down, as was the habit uh, and the custom of rabbis at the time, and he began to teach <clears throat> a group of people, a crowd of people, and he said to them, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he says, anyone who acknowledged their, their spiritual bankruptcy before God will find happiness, favor, honor, and eternal life. He continued, he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And mourning describes our emotional response to the reality uh, of our sinfulness, as we noted last week. Despite what a lot of people think, Christianity is, is not, in essence, a set of rules and regulations. Christianity is about imperfect, uh, sinful people like me and like you finding and experiencing intimacy with the perfect and holy God who created us. It's about having a relationship with Him. Understanding that when we rebel against what he says is right and good and healthy and safe and best for us, uh, and who, better, who knows better than the one who created us, when we go against what God says, that's sin. We betray, we betray our relationship with him. We offend and wound the only, the only being in this universe willing to love us unconditionally forever. And Jesus says, when we're, when we're, when we're crushed by that, when we're brokenhearted over what we've done and who we've done it to, he says, we'll be comforted. And that brings us to his third statement. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, here's the deal. Recognizing my spiritual impoverishment and mourning, you know, the times I sin against God and betray our relationship makes sense to me. I, I, get, I get what Jesus is saying, but I got to tell you, um, the whole meekness thing I really struggle with. It's always been hard for me to wrap my brain around the idea, and there are a couple reasons for that. The first is more of a technical and linguistic issue. Uh, the Greek term for meek here is a unique one. It has limited uses in the New Testament, and so uh, nailing down a concise definition is somewhat challenging. Uh, our word gentleness is sometimes used to express the, uh, the literal meaning, but it fails to reflect the full, the full nuance of the Greek. Uh, and really, there's no one English word that does that. Uh, in fact, scholars agree the meaning assigned to the term uh, used by Jesus is, is very complicated. So that's, that's, that's one issue. But the bigger issue for me, the bigger issue for me in, in grasping and really accepting the idea of meekness is personal. Because the thought of, of people saying, well, Ray is a really meek guy, uh, is troubling to me. Uh, now, why, why is that? Because for a long time, I assumed meekness was a character flaw, not something positive. And, it, and it's been hard for me to overcome that negative perception. It's just been burned in my brain. I hear meek and I can't help but envision a scrawny, timid, passive, won't stand up for yourself type individual. So for some of the, you who know me, you know, I grew up in North Jersey, just outside New York. And, 
I, I grew up in a very blue-collar neighborhood um, where the rule of survival was you got to be tough. Real men work hard, play hard, drink hard, live hard. And you don't take anything from anybody, and you fight if you're challenged, and you never, ever cry. And uh, a lot of that was embodied in my family. We, go, I, we, we would go to family picnics, and uh, my uncles would get into fistfights. I'm not kidding you. One time, I remember being at a picnic one time, and I hear my mom screaming, let's go! Like, what's going on? Your grandfather and uncle are fighting again. And like, what? What's happening? You know, and, uh, but that was a normal deal. My brother uh, was a very tough hombre, I guess you could say. Uh, he got in a lot of fights. He beat up a guy one time so badly at a party, they called the police, the police came, they carted everybody away. My parents had to go to the cop shop to get him. My mom, they walk in, they walk in, and, and there's this, this, this kid, this young man over there, just all bloodied up. His eyes are swollen shut. His mom and dad are standing there. My parents walk in, and the mom says to my mom, she's crying, she says, look, look what your son did to my son. And my mom looked at her and said, I can't help it, your kid doesn't know how to fight. Now, I know we're recording this. We want to edit that out because the family secrets are all flowing this morning, right? So, <laughs> but I'm not making that stuff up. I mean, that, that, that's how I started out. So, you know, uh, when I hear blessed are the meek and I get uneasy, I feel uncomfortable with that. My initial reaction is I don't do meekness. Not interested. And maybe some of you experience similar feelings. I mean, you, you don't have to grow up, you know, North Jersey outside New York to know, you know, our culture is all about power. It's about strength. It's about self-sufficiency and, and assertiveness, right? And so in the same way, we tend not to talk about being poor or mournful. We also hedge on talking about being meek. It's not a goal, man. It's, it's not a label our world respects. And yet Jesus said meekness is an inherent quality of the citizens in his kingdom. It's not optional. And so because of that, it only makes sense we try to better understand what meek means. How do we do that? Well, we start off, I think, by, de by deducing what it can't mean based on the guy who uses the term. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus, Jesus was, he was no wallflower. I mean, he was a tough, confident, decisive, assertive, courageous individual who didn't back down from his critics, spoke his mind, and lived his life with unwavering conviction. No doubt about it. And yet he referred to himself at one point as being meek and humble in heart. And so from, from his perspective, um, we can determine with a high degree of accuracy what meekness is not. It's, not. it's not being physically or emotionally fragile. Jesus isn't talking about indecisiveness or passivity. It certainly can't uh, be talking about a lack of conviction or being so easygoing will do anything to avoid conflict. Neither is, is it about being unassuming social softies, because Jesus was none of those things, none of them. So all those possibilities are reasonably eliminated. I.e., for Jesus, meek does not mean weak. But what does it mean? And <clears throat> to figure that out, it helps to consider Jesus' statement about meekness in the context uh, of his two previous statements. Because, I mean, look, Jesus didn't just go around saying uh, outrageous things, you know, for kicks and giggles. I mean, he, he, wasn't, he didn't go making random declarations just to get a rise out of people, you know, for shock value. 
And it seems to me the context here illustrates that. Because if you stop and you examine the text, you'll notice a specific and logical sequence to his teaching. In a way, Jesus begins with um, the initial point of, of spiritual living, right? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, happy I, you know, happy are, are those who humble themselves before God and on an, intellectual, on an intellectual level acknowledge that they're morally destitute with absolutely no ability to redeem themselves or earn God's, God's favor and God's rescue. That's true for all of us. You know, as human beings, uh, we're all spiritually helpless. And the seriousness of that reality and the consequences of it results in mourning. A deep emotional response we have to, to knowing how our sin wounds the God who loves us. We grieve that. You know, later in the New Testament, remember the Apostle Paul writes about, he writes to the church about a mourning or a godly sorrow. He says that brings repentance. Repentance leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to salvation. It leads to life. And it leaves no regrets. And that's what Jesus was talking about. So if you follow Jesus' flow of thought here, it goes like this. First we're poor. Then we mourn. Then we inevitably become meek. In short, we adopt an accurate view of ourselves as flawed human beings, which is, is, which is expressed and demonstrated through our attitudes uh, and, and our conduct toward God and others. Here's my Ray K definition, at least the first part of it. Meekness is a life devoid of personal arrogance. Now, there's a part of me that's relieved by that. You know, um, I'm pretty confident Jesus isn't telling me to be a wimpy, passive doormat. Yet... Um, Yet another part of me struggles to know exactly what this meekness uh, is supposed to look like in a person's life. For example, how is meekness expressed toward God? And as I thought about that question and I considered the context, it dawned on me how, how some of the answer rests in the Old Testament. And you say, well, why do you say that? Keep in mind, when Jesus made these statements, he was speaking to who? First century Israelites right? Jewish men and women who knew the scriptures and who would have immediately picked up on something that he says, something that we as 21st century uh, Gentiles would, would probably miss. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, his listeners would have immediately realized he was quoting an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 37, written by King David. And in that song, David draws a contrast between wickedness and righteousness, uh, he describes evil in terms of those who, who do wrong, who sin against God, who willfully disobey him, who are violent and selfish and greedy, dishonest and arrogant. In the opening two lines of the song, David writes, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong, for like the grass they will wither, like green plants they will soon die away. In other words, the future of those who do evil is bleak because they place themselves in an adversarial position before their creator, which is not necessarily a safe place to be. But David goes on and he says, the meek will inherit the land. And the Hebrew term there for, for, uh, for uh, land, it literally is earth. So he's saying the meek will inherit the earth. Now, you may think, well, Okay, that's interesting, but so what? 
You know, how does that help me understand what Jesus means by meekness? Well, the reason Jesus quoted David was because David basically defines meekness in the first 10 verses of his song. And if you, if you go back and read the whole thing, the lyrics of Psalm 37, you'll see how David says, those who are meek are people who, who trust in the Lord and they do good. In other words, they obey God, realizing that he knows what's best for us. He created us. He knows what he's doing. We recognize that. So we follow his, his direction. We take delight in the Lord. The, the meek take delight in the Lord. In other words, they worship him. They celebrate uh, who he is, his kindness, and all those things. The meek commit their way to the Lord and they trust him, i.e. their lives center around God. The meek are still before the Lord. They wait patiently for him. They, they prayerfully depend on God and they seek his wisdom rather than just their own. The meek refrain from anger and turn from wrath. In other words, they reject revenge and they release the bitterness. The meek hope in the Lord and in his promises. Then David offers this warning. He says, you know, a little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but, but the meek will inherit the land, the earth, and enjoy peace and prosperity. Uh, here's my Ray K summary. The meek are those men and women who place their sole dependence on the grace and the goodness of God. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, like David, he's saying, happy, favored, rewarded are those who trust, delight, commit, obey, and have faith and hope in God alone. In other words, meekness is a life without arrogance before God, demonstrated by our submission to him. The attitude of meekness is, Lord, everything I am is because of you. Everything I have is a result of your goodness. Everything I need flows from your grace and your faithfulness. Everything I do will be done out of loving obedience to you. See, those who are meek, truly meek, have an accurate view of themselves uh, as flawed human beings, wholly dependent on the grace of God for everything, everything, including life everlasting. But here's the second part of the equation. Not only is meekness a life devoid of arrogance toward God, but, but also a life devoid of arrogance toward other human beings. Don't miss the fact that David and Jesus both imply this. They, they imply that meekness affects our everyday relationships. But again, the question comes back to how. How, is that, how, is, how does that play out? How is meekness expressed toward others? And to answer that question, we need to go back even further in the Old Testament, where a great leader of God's people was once described as a very meek man, more meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. The text is Numbers 12. Who is it talking about? Moses. Some translations read Moses was humble, the most humble man on the face of the earth, which is an acceptable translation. But the Hebrew term used of Moses here is the same one David uses in Psalm 37 for meek and is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek term used in Matthew 5.5. Point being, these three texts are grammatically linked. And realizing that, I thought, okay then, so Moses must be an example of the meekness Jesus is talking about. And I think that's true. And what's fascinating is, is the historical and biblical context in which we find this affirma affirmation of Moses' uh, of Moses's meekness. Because frankly, it's kind of a sad and unfortunate situation. It's one in which Moses' brother Aaron and his sister Miriam uh, began talking about Moses behind his back. Uh, they were bad-mouthing him in public, undermining his authority by attempting to you know, exert their own. 
And it all started, all that nonsense started after the death of Moses' wife, Zephora. You know, when he remarried a Cushite woman, a black African from ancient Nubia, which is modern-day Sudan. And his brother and sister didn't approve of that. Uh, and in addition, in addition to their sinful prejudices, they were also jealous of Moses' closeness to God and his authority. Uh, and so they criticized him. You know, they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? I mean, you can hear the envy, you know, dripping from the comments and the arrogance. Hey, Moses isn't the only prophet and leader on the, on the block. We're important too. God's used us just as much as he's used him. And so they start just trashing their brother. And what's amazing to me is that Moses doesn't pay any attention. However, God does. The text says the Lord heard this and was angered at their attitudes and their behavior. Suddenly, this cloud apparently descended on both of them, through which God's voice said to Aaron and his sister, you know, you know this is wrong. And he, and he rebukes them for what their attitudes and what they were doing. And when the cloud lifts, Miriam is standing there with leprosy. Now, is it the same leprosy we talk about today? Well, we don't know. The point is, it was some sort of skin disease that turned her skin a pale, sickly white. It was almost as if God was saying, you really think your lighter skin is superior to Moses' wife? Here's some really, really white skin. See how it feels to be treated like an inferior, like an outcast. While all that's happening, uh, Moses never criticizes his siblings. He doesn't say really anything. He doesn't say, way to go, Lord, that's what she deserved, and how about you give Aaron a few boils while you're at it? You know, he doesn't... <laughs> You know, cast some boils on him. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't do anything like that. Nothing like that. In fact, in fact, the, what's really fascinating, he's, he does the opposite. He cries out and he says, please, God, heal my sister. Heal her. And God does. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard about that event in Moses' life before or not, but as I was processing it, I, re I realized in a real way this event shows what true meekness toward others is about. Right? I mean, it's about patience. I mean, even in the face of critical opposition, Moses doesn't flip out. He doesn't impulsively react in anger or revenge. Why? Because it wasn't God's honor or reputation being challenged. It was just his. And Moses wasn't all that concerned about himself. So he didn't react to the evil things being said about him, the lies being told, the, the criticism. He didn't respond. People's words didn't inflame his pride because Moses was meek. He had an attitude devoid of arrogance and an inflated self-importance. Self his story reminds me of a time when Jesus was barred from entering the city, the city of Samaria. The Samaritans said, we don't want you guys in here. We don't want you Jews in here. We don't care who you say you are. You're not coming through our town. We don't want you. And the disciples, if you recall the story, the disciples, man, they were bugging out. They were really mad. They said, Lord, let's, let's call down fire from heaven on this barbecue, these chumps. You know, let's wipe them out. Let's show them who's boss. Let's, 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 let's display some real power here. Plus, it'd be kind of cool to see. Let's do this. And if you remember, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'm not going to do that. I didn't come to destroy people. I came to serve them and save them. Even if they don't want me in their town, 
I still love them. Just like Moses, Jesus had been wronged, embarrassed, um, verbally, publicly trashed, yet, yet he was patient. He, he didn't strike back. He didn't lash out. He didn't abuse his power. In fact, over the years, I've heard meekness defined as strength under control. I think that's a big part of it. Moses and Jesus both demonstrated that. Both were patient in the face of opposition. So back to Moses. So his meekness was reflected by this, his patience. But not only that, it was reflected in his willingness to forgive. According to the text, <clears throat> Aaron speaks for himself and his sister. And he says, please, Moses, please don't hold against us the sin we've so foolishly committed. Please. And then he starts to lay it on really thick. He says, oh, don't let your sister be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. Like, oh, you know, like... Uh, that's a really pretty gross image, um, although it's a compelling appeal, yeah? But understand, it wasn't the creativity of Aaron's apology that prompted Moses to forgive them. Forgiveness came because Moses understood that he too was a sinful guy, a sinful person. He wasn't perfect. And because he had experienced the grace of God in his own life, he was compelled to extend grace to others. Compelled to do it even to those who mistreated him. And this is what the Apostle Paul's getting at when he, when he writes the church in the New Testament. He says, look, he says, you guys, be patient with each other, be gentle with each other, bear with each other, and forgive one another. If any one of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And that's exactly what Moses does. His meekness was demonstrated through his patience and his forgiveness. And also, by way of his compassion. I mean, his heart broke for his sister and he cried out on her behalf. And as I thought about that, I wondered, is it possible, is it possible to be someone who has experienced the grace of God in, in, a, in, your, in your life and not be compassionate? I mean, is that, is that possible? Seriously. Is it possible to know divine forgiveness for one's own sins and still have a calloused heart toward others, other imperfect people? I don't think it is. That's just me. I, I, don't, I don't think it is. It seems to me that, seems to me that as fellow Christians, as, as, as those who have experienced the grace of God in our own lives for the stuff that we've done, if we're not tender-hearted and compassionate toward one another, toward others, I think there's a problem with that. You know, if a husband isn't tender and compassionate with his wife and his kids, there's a problem with that. If, if a wife isn't tender-hearted and compassionate and forgiving toward her husband and kids, there's a problem with that. If, if friends aren't tender-hearted and, and, and compassionate toward one another, there's a problem with that. If a, a pastor isn't compassionate toward his people, there's a problem with that. If a congregation is calloused and critical and lacking compassion for its staff or one another, there's a problem with that. And if the church lacks compassion for its community even those who are critical of Christianity, there's a problem with that. And here's why. Because Jesus says meekness, expressed through patience, forgiveness, tenderhearted compassion toward others, meekness is a distinct quality of his people. So maybe we need to ask ourselves, <clears throat> are we as God's people, as followers of Jesus, distinguished 
by our patience, forgiveness, and compassion, even to those who criticize us. And if not, why not? Why not? History tells us Moses was a man of great meekness. And when I look at him, what do I see him doing? I see him, I see him rejecting prejudice, accepting and loving someone whose skin color and ethnic background was completely different from his own. I see him loving people who criticized him and who mistreated him, tried to ruin him. I see him forgiving them. And seeing all that, it, you start to get a sense of what meekness looks like, what it means. Ultimately, it, it, it's about grace. It's about reaching out and embracing one another. It's about getting rid of our, of, our, of our arrogance and our prejudice and our bitterness and loving each other no matter what the color of our skin, no matter the size of our bank accounts or the style of our clothes. I mean, let's face it. Meekness means being gentle and loving even toward those who oppose us. Whether, whether family, friends, classmates, coworkers, neighbors, or, the, or just the culture at large. I mean, keep in mind, in the same Sermon on the Mount, just a few minutes after Jesus offered these first eight opening statements, <clears throat> he goes on and he says this, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? If you, if you greet only your own people, where, uh, what, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? In another instance, he put it this way, he says, Love your enemies, do good to them, and give without expecting to get anything back. Then you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked me. So be merciful just as your father is merciful. Don't judge and you will not be judged. Don't condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. So here's the big question. Man, oh man, oh man. Loving our enemies, extending mercy, no judgment, no condemnation, forgiving, radical, unconditional generosity. <laughs> how are we doing with all those? I mean, when you begin to really think about it, clearly meekness is a heavily nuanced, multifaceted deal. In fact, there's one final thing I want to mention about meekness as it applied to, to Moses. His meekness made him effective in serving others. Because think about, think about this. Think how God responds to Moses' prayer for his sister. He heals Miriam. God heals her. Why? Because God wasn't as more than willing to work through and respond to humble servants who place the needs of others before their own. Those who realize that they're just as imperfect as the next person. You know, I've said this before, and no doubt I'll say it again, but honestly, I just don't get how this happens. I really, I don't get how this happens but so often as Christians, we, we arrive at a place in life where, where arrogance creeps back into our hearts and to our minds and we just start thinking so much of ourselves and, and our preferences and our ideas and our opinions and we feel as if we have somehow arrived and we are better and more informed and more knowledgeable, more spiritual than most everybody else. A lot of people walk into church facilities like this every Sunday with pens in hand, not to take notes, but to rate the show, critique the music, judge what people wear, evaluate the flow of service, dissect the message, uh, decide whether the speaker's entertaining, whether there's enough classes offered, 
on Sunday for them or enough programming offered throughout the week for them and their families. It's a what is in this for me mentality. It's like we're looking for the park district with a religious spin to it. And well church people tend to talk about being fed, which in many cases is appropriate because they're basically consumers. Look, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, our westernized concept of faith has warped into thinking that this whole thing, this whole deal, this whole Christian thing, this whole church thing is about me getting served, not serving. It's about me getting what I like, what I want, what I think's best, what I prefer, what I, you know, for me. And the attitude is, what can I get from here versus what can I give? And I'm telling you, that is not meekness. It's just not. <laughs> but the thing is, we don't even see it. it we, 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 we don't even see it. The entitled consumerism is such a part of who we are as Americans. It is the cultural air that we breathe. And asking us to recognize it is like asking a fish to recognize water. The fish says, what's water? And yet setting ourselves aside, putting aside our, our own preferences, our own needs, our own desires, to serve others is a key pathway to spiritual formation that's often overlooked and neglected. It is a key, serving others is a key pathway to spiritual formation, it is. And so my prayer for our church, for all of us, myself included, is that we would, we would see this entitled consumerism that's killing the church. And we would see it in ourselves first. And instead of coming with a what's in this for me attitude, as followers of Jesus, we come together before God and with each other with true meekness. We come with a simple, genuine, humble desire to worship the God who loves us and to encounter him, to hear his word, to respond to his spirit, and to put ourselves aside to serve others, learning together, growing together, and then getting out of here to make a different spiritual difference in our world. Loving those who are different from us, and even those who oppose us. Ultimately, realizing that this whole deal is not about me. It's not about me. That's one of the reasons we're doing next month, Everybody Does Sunday, at the end of the month, 29th, where, you know, we're, we're going to have services. Those services are going to be spread all, all over DuPage County. And we're going to, because look, this is, this is not church, you see? This is not church. You are the church. And you're here only one hour a week. Where do you live the rest of your life? Out in the world. That's where the church functions. That's where the church lives. That's where the church ministers. That's where the church serves. And so to, to make sure that we, we get that and we don't forget that uh, on the 29th, we're going we're gonna to send teams out all over to locations and just serve the community. Do things for people that they didn't expect or, or they couldn't do themselves. And I tell you what, you do that, that is a radical message to people who don't understand Christianity or who think differently about Christians. And we'll, I know, we'll be criticized for doing it, but it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's meekness. 
And based on what I read in Scripture, it seems pretty clear God is pleased with and will show favor toward that kind of meekness. But hey, you know, look, I, I don't have all this down. I don't have all this down with my twisted background and preconceived ideas about it. I'm still learning. I'm learning it as, as with Jesus and with Moses. I'm learning meekness isn't weakness. It's compatible with strength and boldness. It's, it's well-matched with power, authority, and assertiveness. It just means we have an accurate view of ourselves as flawed and imperfect human beings. And therefore, our lives and our attitudes and our behaviors are devoid of personal arrogance, of spiritual arrogance, of arrogance of any kind to any degree, which is revealed through our dependence on the grace of God and demonstrated every day through our patience and our forgiveness, our compassion and our service to others, even to others who mistreat us. And what's the result of all that? What's the result? An inheritance. An inheritance uh, of all things. An inheritance of all things that belong to God becomes ours. Because Jesus said, blessed, happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's pray. Father, once again, these are hard words for us. They're easy to read, but they're really hard to hear. But I pray the truth of them would sink in through the veneer of our religiosity to the very core of who we are as your followers and help us recognize who you've called us to be and how to live and that your spirit would empower us to be truly meek, in the eyes of one another, in the eyes of our world. Help us to have a greater understanding of what the church is and what you've called us to do. I pray that you would help us to break through this, this cultural consumerism that has infiltrated your people. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would reveal to us those areas of arrogance or bitterness or anger or prejudice in our lives. I pray that you would reveal those areas to us and that you would bring about healing and that your grace, God, would change us from the inside out. And that change would be obvious to not only our people in our families and our life groups, our friends, but to the world that you love and you call your church to. Whatever you need to do in our lives, Lord, by the power of your spirit, do it today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to thank you all for being with us this morning. and. Um, <clears throat> Let me tell you something. Most of you know I just got back from a sabbatical for three months. I was off. And uh, I learned a lot about things about myself. And one of the learnings I came away with uh, is I, I, don't, I don't really know how much longer I'm going to be doing this. Uh, I, you probably haven't noticed, but I'm getting older. I'm sure you haven't noticed. But, you know, I, I've been a pastor 28 years. And... Um, 
Part of the thing I, I, I realize on sabbatical is however long God gives me to do this, whether it's 20, another 28 years, 20, I, I mean, I don't know how long, but I know this. I don't want to just do the church thing. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do the consumer thing. I, I, don't, I don't think our world has time for us to do that. We have to understand who we are, why we're here, and what God has called us to do. It's not about the show. It's not about the programming. It's not about the classes. It's, it's, not, about, it's not the park district with a spiritual twist. God has called us as his people to a radical way of living, a way that will change people's lives. And that doesn't happen necessarily in one hour in the walls of this building. The church exists for the most part out there. We come in here, we worship together, and we prepare to go back out. But we go out and we serve with humility and meekness because it's not about me getting, it's about me serving. It's about you serving others just as Jesus served us to the point of death. That's what the church is about. And you, my friends, are the church. And I hope, I hope you get it. I hope, you know, I hope God will open our eyes to what's culturally part of who we are and it will just rip that apart and, and change us and, uh, so that we can really have a difference, make a difference in our world. So I appreciate you being here today. We're gonna continue next week. We're gonna take a look at what Jesus says next. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't necessarily get any easier. <laughs> We're through three. We got five statements to go. It doesn't necessarily get any easier. But uh, hopefully you'll come back and we'll work through it together. We'll learn together. We'll grow together. Okay? If you have some stuff on your heart this morning, it's been a rough week, or maybe you're struggling with some personal attitudes that you knew, you know your God's Spirit said you need to work on those. If you want someone to pray for you, some of our folks will be down here in the front. They're happy to pray with you and be with you. Okay? Let me pray for us. And now, Lord, as your church leaves this building, um, May we recognize how the church exists most of the week in the context of our world, in the context of people who don't necessarily understand us, like us, or agree with us, but you have called us to love them and to serve them and to live uh, lives of true meekness. I pray, God, you help us to better understand what that means as we move on in our lives and as a church we grow together in that. And so now as we leave, may your hand of grace and peace and strength and power rest on your people, the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you next Sunday.